Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Cohen. A quick note to tell you about a 10-minute special episode that's only available on our website. It's about Mahler's best friend, Siegfried Lippiner. In the episode, you'll learn about who Lippiner was, why Mahler liked him so much, and how his ideas impacted Mahler's music. Be sure to check that out on our website. Click on the Special Episodes tab. Season 3 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler, was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. We've now reached the halfway point in Mahler's Third Symphony, and the fourth movement is a turning point. Mahler said the first movement was part one of the symphony, and the rest of the movements were part two. But we can also think of the symphony in two halves. The first three movements are the biological movements, and the next three are where Mahler turns to the spiritual realm, the spiritual side of consciousness, which he includes in his joyful science. For his fourth movement, Mahler created a dramatic orchestral song, unique among vocal songs for orchestra. Here's how it begins. The lyrics Mahler used for this song come from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. We'll get some background on Nietzsche. We'll learn about one of Nietzsche's most famous books, and especially the excerpt that Mahler chose from it. And then we'll return to the fourth movement. I'm Aaron Cohen. I hope you enjoy it. During the composition of his third symphony, Mahler immersed himself in the writings of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. For more about Nietzsche, here's Ioannis Konstantakos, a professor of ancient Greek literature in the Faculty of Philology at the University of Athens in Greece. And for clarification, philology is the historical study of language and literature through literary texts. Friedrich Nietzsche actually trained as a classical philologist with a specialization in archaic and classical Greek literature. He was therefore a professional Hellenist and classicist in his early years, and his study of Greek literature, philosophy, and culture shaped his early ideas and his worldview, which was then to be manifested in his mature philosophical works. As we saw in the first movement, Mahler drew inspiration from the ancient Greeks when composing his third symphony, and this was likely Nietzsche's influence. Nietzsche actually began his career teaching the Greek classics as a university professor, when he was only 24. He could have been a great university professor if he had wished to, but from early on it seems that his mind, his thought, turned towards other directions. So he resigned from his chair, he uh, adopted the life of a wandering intellectual, writing his philosophical works, and uh, from that point onwards, inevitably, his philosophical concepts and ideas were read back to the ancient Greek world, and they influenced his view of the ancient Greeks. Nietzsche and Mahler were contemporaries, although Nietzsche was no longer writing by the time Mahler was composing his third symphony. Joanna Neely, a professor of German literature at Oxford University in England. So I've seen Nietzsche described both as a philosopher-poet and as a poet-philosopher. 
I would lean slightly towards the latter, a poet philosopher. My feeling is that Nietzsche asks us to approach philosophy, but to do so with a literary sensibility. Mahler especially loved Nietzsche's poetic fire. Nietzsche was unusual as a philosopher in that he was exceptionally musical, and it would be difficult to overstate the importance of music to his life and ideas. Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music, was written with the encouragement of the composer Richard Wagner. In that book, Nietzsche linked Wagner's music dramas with the Greek ideal of balance. Nietzsche himself composed music. For instance, the piano music we're listening to now was composed by Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, was published in the 1880s, and within 20 years, no less than three major composers had written significant works based on it, including Mahler in his Third Symphony. We'll sample all three compositions, beginning with the most famous by Richard Strauss, his tone poem, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And here, Nietzsche's philosophical text inspired one of the most iconic pieces of music of all time. Listen to Nietzsche's words on top of the music by Strauss. When Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. Here he enjoyed his spirit and solitude and for 10 years did not tire of it. But at last his heart transformed. One morning he arose with the dawn, stepped before the sun and spoke to it thus, You great star, what would your happiness be if you had not those for whom you shine? For ten years you have come up here to my cave. You would have tired of your light and of this routine without me, my eagle and my snake. But we awaited you every morning, took your overflow from you, and blessed you for it. We'll listen to more of Strauss's Thus Spoke Zarathustra while we talk about Nietzsche's book. And this book is also where Mahler got the text for the fourth movement of his third symphony. Marilyn McCoy, a music professor at Columbia University. In a way, maybe it's a, a, a braggadocio thing to do. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, whoa, I'm reading Nietzsche too, you know, as far as, you know, and, and writing all this amazing music at the same time. And it's even inspired by Nietzsche. And there's definitely competition going on with Strauss, who's doing exactly the same thing. Hey, I'm reading Nietzsche. Look, I wrote this big, long poem about Zarathustra. Um, you know, um, there's sort of an ego battle there. Mahler and Strauss were both writing music based on Thus Spoke Zarathustra at the same time, between 1895 and 1896. Caroline Kita, a professor of German and comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis, 
Strauss and Mahler had such a fascinating relationship. You know, they were constantly being pitted against each other in the press. They were two of the most high-profile composers of the German classical music world. Both were also orchestra conductors. In truth, I don't think there was that kind of animosity. And in fact, they were both great promoters of each other's works. They, um, they conducted each other's works, um, were very um, supportive in that way. And so I think a lot of those anecdotes that seem to affirm a kind of yeah, animosity or opposition between the two of them were not so, don't have a lot of basis. In the 1890s, Mahler was known as the better conductor and Strauss, the better composer. But Strauss called himself the first Mahlerian, and Mahler said that of all the gods, Strauss was his only friend. Certainly they had perhaps different worldviews, they expressed things differently, they had different styles, but um, they themselves were uh, much more supportive than one might think. Here's what Mahler said about their relationship. Schopenhauer somewhere uses the image of two miners who dig a tunnel from opposite sides and then meet on their subterranean ways. That seems fittingly to characterize my relationship with Strauss. Both composers immediately sensed there was something deeply musical in Nietzsche's work. Mahler said this, Zarathustra is entirely born of the spirit of music. In fact, it's constructed quite symphonically. Joanna Neely, you might describe it as something like a prose poem. So if you're looking to read the work of a philosopher, you might expect clear arguments rationally laid out, following from A to B in a logical sequence. Whereas in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, we have commands, we have prophecies, we've got a thinly plotted fictional life. And Nietzsche speaks indirectly through his protagonist, Zarathustra. Thus Spoke Zarathustra was written in four parts between 1883 and 1885. The character of Zarathustra is based on the ancient Iranian religion of Zoroastrianism, although the book is meant to echo the style of the Bible. And at times, we find the character of Zarathustra being very playful. At its heart, Thus Spoke Zarathustra represents an effort to find meaning on earth after the death of God. So it's the big question of what the truth of life is, or what life's aim is, if that aim is not a religious afterlife. Zarathustra is presented as a wanderer. And the book is a series of his monologues, as well as his words to others who aren't yet ready to receive his truth. So he's kind of a prophet before his time. In addition to Strauss and Mahler, the British composer Frederick Delius was inspired to write music based on Nietzsche's Zarathustra, his Mass of Life, from 1905. Delius said that reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra for the first time was one of the most important events of his life. While Strauss wrote music only for orchestra, Delius's Mass of Life is an enormous work for orchestra, soloists, and choir. Here is one of Zarathustra's most important revelations. Sing and overflow, O Zarathustra. Cure your soul with new songs that you may bear your great destiny 
which has never yet been any man's destiny. Behold, you are the teacher of the eternal recurrence. That is your destiny. The eternal recurrence is the idea that we each live our life over and over and over again, and it's the same every time. We can't change anything about what happens to us or hope for a better life next time. Joanna Neely. So this idea, eternal recurrence, eliminates the need to follow a particular kind of religious morality. So Nietzsche does away with the Christian idea of enduring suffering on earth for heavenly reward in the afterlife. So we don't endure suffering here, we celebrate it. And that's the real difference. You're not sort of getting through the suffering on earth in order to achieve your eternal reward. You're embracing suffering and joy together as experience. And experience is the thing. It's not whether it's good or bad, it's life. All of life, everything is embraced. This is not perhaps as abstract as it sounds. It's not just theoretical because a person who's ready to will the eternal recurrence of their exact life should surely also be a person who will live meaningfully so that they could will that recurrence. Zarathustra introduces the eternal recurrence as a rondelet which is appropriately a circular song. Have you now learned my song? Have you guessed its intent? Well then, you higher man, sing me now my round. Sing me the song whose name is Once More and whose meaning is Into All Eternity. Sing, you higher men, Zarathustra's round. The round is known as the Midnight Song. This is the poem that inspired Delius to compose music that would eventually become his mass of life. And it's the same text Mahler would choose for inclusion in his third symphony. Here are the lyrics of the Midnight Song, on top of music by Delius. O humanity, beware. What does the deep midnight now declare? I slept, I slept. From a deep dream I awoke. The world is deep, and deeper than the day had been aware. Deep is the world's woe, its joy deeper still than misery. Woe says, be gone, yet all joy wants eternity, wants deep, deep eternity. Carter Bray, Principal Cello of the New York Philharmonic. I get the feeling that it has to do with the question of human mortality and where we fit into the universe. Uh, It's very broad, and it's a little bit vague and difficult to pin down. Joy desires eternity. What does that mean, exactly? (laughs) Nietzsche explained further. All that suffers wants to live that it may become ripe and joyous and longing, longing for what is farther, higher, brighter. Joy wants itself, wants eternity, wants recurrence, wants everything eternally the same. Mahler used these same lyrics in the fourth movement of his third symphony, 
but he adjusted the text from a series of 11 lines to two stanzas, and he strategically added extra repetitions. For a sense of the possible meaning Mahler found in these lyrics, we turn to Mahler's close friend Siegfried Lippener, a poet and philosopher who had a lengthy correspondence with Nietzsche. Lippener said this, Let no one believe that philosophy is superfluous because it fails to provide answers to certain questions. Not answering, but questioning is its first duty. It is not the inability to answer, but the inability to question wherein the knowledge of most people suffers. Always and ever anew must philosophy thoroughly discuss the problems. It must show what we do not know and what we need to know. It has an immense duty to fulfill, one worthy of the noblest striving. And this ties in with a comment Nietzsche made in his book, The Joyful Science. Gradually, man has become a fantastic animal that has to fulfill one more condition of existence than any other animal. Man has to believe, to know from time to time, why he exists. When Mahler composed his third symphony, he called the fourth movement, What Humanity Tells Me. And Mahler uses the Midnight Song to capture a fundamental truth of humanity. The question, why are we here? The mystery of our own existence. Here's what it sounds like. The music is familiar. Let's compare it to this part from the first movement. In the first movement, this music leads us into Mahler's musical exploration of lifeless matter. And these mysterious sounds come from the low brass. In the fourth movement, these same sounds come from the low strings and harp. Cellist Carter Bray. I always thought that the way he orchestrated this, so spare and so cold in a way, was to create a sort of galactic vision of outer space in a way. You see, you see the occasional shooting star, the occasional, the occasional planet. Oh, humanity. Oh, humanity. Why a mezzo-soprano? Music professor Marilyn McCoy. Maybe Mahler thinks that those sort of universal powers out there are feminine. as if a very sort of ancient being is calling out. The mezzo-soprano's vocal color and strong presence anchors the song. 
What does the deep midnight now declare? Mahler called this oboe solo the bird of the night. It could be a symbolic bird or a real one. Keep an ear out for it. You'll hear a lot more of it. I slept. I slept. Mahler disorients us by having the lower strings play septuplets and the winds accent the offbeats. All of this helps to give us a sense of floating or dreaming, and our mystical messenger is waking up. From a deep dream, I awoke. Deeper than day had been aware. The violins play their first full-fledged melody. Cellist Carter Bray. That's such a vocal, human, sweet and searching, almost lost figuration. The melody is remarkably free in the way it unfolds, and is very special because it's created by combining many of the short melodic fragments we've heard since the opening of the piece. This melody will be repeated with words as the climax of the song at the end of the movement. Mahler divided the text into two stanzas. As we finish the first stanza, the music falls apart, and we're back where we started. For the second stanza, Midnight's message is coming, and this one will be more dramatic. Oh, humanity. Humanity.
Carter Bray. It all seems to be enveloped in this, in this um, not twilight, but inky blackness. That, that, to me, is what he's evoking here, a sort of existential, free-floating, not anxiety. I wouldn't call it an anxious movement, but it's a, it's a searching movement. He's searching. Deep. Deep, deep is the world's woe. A violin joins the mezzo-soprano and the bird of the night from this point onwards. And the lyrics now meditate on what the word deep means. What kinds of feelings can be deep? Deep is the world's woe. It's joy deeper still than misery. says, be gone. Woe says, be gone. Yet all joy wants eternity. Wants deep, deep eternity. With an ending like that, the implication is that there is no answer. Something that felt like a revelation doesn't really answer all of the questions and all of the issues that were raised. And so it's like our midnight goes back to sleep. And that means that this whole question can occur to us again on some other night when we're having deep thoughts and we awaken at midnight. We cycle back to where we started perfect musical representation of the eternal recurrence. <laughs> 